What is up, everyone? Welcome to Education Policy Weekly. I'm your host, John Phillips. Today is July 1st, 2020, and I am excited to have Dr. Jennifer Nelson, who is a postdoctoral fellow at Vanderbilt University, joining me on the show today. Prior to starting at Peabody College at Vanderbilt, Jennifer received her PhD in sociology at Emory. At Peabody, she studies schools as organizations, and today she's joining me to talk about her 2019 research in which she studied how organizational minorities form and use social ties at school. Before sharing my conversation with Jennifer, I wanted to place our conversation into broader context. The education research community focuses a lot, quite rightly, on the importance of teachers in terms of student learning and achievement. However, these last few months have shown us how schools are about so much more than that. They are spaces for students to develop social skills, they are workplaces for sometimes hundreds of adults, and they are breeding grounds for racism and white supremacy if left unchecked. My conversation with Jennifer delves into the power of the principal and the organizational moves that a principal can make that can radically alter the experiences of a set of teachers at school. This should serve as a reminder that it is not enough to simply hire more black teachers. If they are stepping into environments where they are not welcomed and reminded of that daily, then their potential impact will be stifled from the start. If you aren't already subscribed to Education Policy Weekly, then make sure you do so on whatever podcast app you use. You can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at ByJohnPhillips. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please share it widely and leave a five-star review on iTunes. This interview with Jennifer was recorded last year, but our need to understand the impact that administrators can have on teachers is more important now than ever. So without further ado, Jennifer Nelson from Peabody College at Vanderbilt University. So Jennifer, I'll start with this question of how did you get started and interested in looking at schools as organizations? I knew I was fascinated with schools as organizations. They're very complex. Um, I think, you know, schools were the bedrock and foundation of organizational theory as it's taught today in business schools and other disciplines, just because schools are very complex. They reflect, you know, their outside environment. They have to adapt to their outside environment. They're tasked with a very um, important societal function, both to kind of train young children and teens, both academically and in other non you know, they're charged too with non their non-academic development or social, emotional, cognitive development. So schools are in charge of a lot of things. They deal with a lot of external pressures. And then in particular, I've just always been fascinated with the teaching profession. Um, so as Dan Lorty, a sociologist, um, he has this classic study of the teaching profession. And he talks about how teachers are under a lot of external pressures. Um, so they find ways to kind of defend their autonomy. But unfortunately, um, what he finds in his study is that teachers usually don't do this through organizing collectively through unions and such or pushing back against higher levels of hierarchy, such as, um, you know, the higher level administrators or their school principal. Rather, they kind of they find ways to uh, 
get by, but then also do what they want to do within their classroom. So he comes up with this idea of the egg crate, um, where he's just saying teachers basically operate in a cell, like on their own. They're not very connected to anyone around them. Um, but my experience as a teacher from day one, as a novice teacher, I realized how important it was, um, from the, you know, just if we're going to talk like in the immediate context of the school I worked in, in my principal's eyes, who I associated with, I could pick up pretty easily that that was important to her. Um, if I associated with teachers who were, you know, always naysayers, always complaining, always questioning her decisions, she wouldn't like that. Uh, on the flip side, if I associated with teachers who were kind of on board, enthusiastic, were friendly with the principal, you know, these are just kind of basic sociological um, insights, I guess, that how organizational life works. You don't want to as an employee, you don't want to align yourself um, in ways that your superiors are not going to look kindly yes. towards. So kind of from those teaching experiences, I had suspicion about this egg crate theory. Um, like definitely teachers do function autonomously. They like the freedom they have in their classroom. I agree with that. Mm -hmm. But I think, I mean, at least especially in high schools where, you know, teaching faculty can be quite large. There's a lot of opportunity for interaction, um, like during duty, when teachers have duty, during their off block, they can, you know, walk to the school, um, during their planning periods, uh, at the bus line, et cetera. So right. I, that's, that's why I decided on this topic. Basically, my dissertation was about how does the organizational environment of the school impact um, teachers' coworker support. So some of those elements of the organization I was interested in was demographics of the teaching faculty, um, like what the composition or per percentages or fractions of different demographic backgrounds were, especially by race. Um, also leadership practices the principal used and then spatial arrangements inside the school. So how did these three different organizational elements impact the kind of quality of coworker support a teacher can get um, on the job? So that's how I chose this topic. And I also... Um, I also knew like an ethnographic method and interviewing methods would be able to capture things that prior studies that rely on teacher survey data right. could only go so far to capture. Right. Which is, which is great. And I think that your, your general point about how schools are interesting microchasms of a lot of other areas of life. Like they encapsulate a lot of the sociological phenomenon that we interact with elsewhere. And I, I tell my kids all the time that if you are worried about being able to leave your next class five minutes early to do X, Y, and Z, part of it is just how you present yourself and who you interact with and all of these phenomenon. I'm, I'm trying to get them to realize that if they pick up at age 14 or age 15, some of the some people might call them soft skills. You know, you can name them whatever you want to name them. But this idea of your social life mattering, not just for, you know, all the benefits that being social has on your health, but also it matters to other people. And the way that you get things done isn't always through the written rule book that's presented to you, but it's really about understanding who really holds the cards in a particular situation. So I think that that's super interesting. So that kind of leads nicely into this larger question. And you, you made a really smart point about how it does seem that schools are 
taught as case studies. Like you can, you can go to, um, you can look at some of the case studies that um, Harvard Business School does. And there are a lot of studies, not only of districts, but also just like some of the tensions that are at play in schools and in various other areas of the educational process. And so for someone who has never thought, who has never thought literally about the way that organizational moves and some of these things that are taught in management classes for MBA students and all these other things, how they factor into the social culture of a school. Mm. So how are those organizational decisions so potentially impactful? Um, a lot of these things, when I, I interviewed the principals at the end of the school year, uh, and would kind of informally talk to them throughout the year as well. But when I asked them about um, three of these practices they used, um, most of the time they didn't think much of them. So some of the, some of the organizational moves that I found to be really important, um, firstly, how principals made hiring decisions. So mm. um, what I found, so I studied two districts that were uh, next door neighbors and one was urban and one was suburban. Right. And in the um, majority black faculty school district, the principals would use a hiring practice where they would use incumbent referrals. So by that, I mean um, a recommend, you know, kind of a informal recommendation from someone who already works in the school right. says, Oh, my neighbor, you know, miss Oxby, I'm just making that name up. Mm-hmm. She um, lives in my neighborhood. I think she'd be a great teacher. She's looking for a job. I told her to submit her application. You should look at it. Yes. Um, and so what I found in the majority black faculty schools, um, the principals in those schools, and those were also black led schools, mm-hmm. um, they would use incumbent referrals equally for both white and black teachers they would hire. So right. these are black numer- uh, black majority teachers, like numerically they're the majority inside yes. the organization, and also white numerical minority teachers who are the minority inside the organization. So there's that. But then in contrast, in the white, uh, let me rephrase that, the, the black suburban. minority district. Oh, gotcha. Right. Um, and those, the three schools I had there, two of them were white-led by white principals and one was led by a black principal. But in all three of those schools, they would use incumbent referrals to hire new white teachers, but they would not use incumbent referrals to hire new black teachers. Mm. And the reason this became important um, for how teachers in the school, new teachers in the school kind of found their way and established their network, um, you know, found trusted people they could talk to, get lesson plans, resources from, figure out things like what procedures actually really matter to the principal that you get done right away, that kind of stuff. Right. Um, all that, that is slowed down a lot. The, those ties for the um, teachers who are hired without coming in, knowing no one, no one referred them in. It takes it there. I found that their ties were formed much more gradually. Like it took some of them up one year, up to six years to establish um, kind of a, a strong tie with an in an in group member, so a fellow black teacher, if they're a black num- numerical minority teacher. So um, that practice, that organizational move used by the principal um, of kind of these asymmetric hiring strategies led to uh, it, it was a factor in the school culture in that it kind of integrated some employee new employees really quickly into the social fabric of the school and made that process much longer for others. Um, right. So, and I'm something I'd like to add there. And this is kind of like, I think this organizational move of hiring is complicated because it's a, in this particular case, when we're talking about schools, 
Um, particularly, I did my study in the South, and a lot of schools in the South to this day still have ongoing teacher desegregation court orders, um, whereby some districts are, are still charged, like 40 years later, um, to hire more black teachers mm-hmm. and more black personnel. And so, in one of the in the, one of the districts I studied, that was the case. There was the court order had actually been technically fulfilled uh, for a little less than 10 years by the time I started my study. But um, it was a it had an it had like an impact on that organization right. because the teachers I interviewed said, you know, the black teachers, some of them said, I heard about this mandate or that, you know, this district really needed to hire black teachers. So I put in my application in the interviews as well with white teachers. They had a lot of this kind of white backlash reaction to this um, mandate. So you can see how like when we're talking about hiring, it's not and schools in, in particular yes. and race. Like there's the internal practice of hiring, you know, that one particular principal choosing not to use incumbent referrals. But there's also this kind of external, um, larger than the school, you know, state legal level um, that is also impacting, kind of trickling down and impacting the school as well. But um, my findings still suggest that, like, even with the problematic, you know, there's problematic implementation of this court mandate since. Right. Even though it was fulfilled, there were still, um, you know, inequitable hiring strategies being used such that, you know, if you're not hired in by a referral, it's kind of like slowing down the bonding that could occur. And that's just handicapping any future referrals that could ever happen, even if a principal was willing to do that. Right. So it's interesting to me to hear how that's something pretty palpable, right? When you just hear... This idea of if you follow this practice with equity across racial lines, that mm-hmm. the benefits are for you and your school are pretty great, right? Mm-hmm. And it makes me think a lot about how when we think of social network theory, right, especially as it relates to schools, there there's an organizational chart that exists anywhere, right? But especially at schools, right? You assume that the further up the food chain you go, the more power and influence that you have. However, yeah. if you look at studies that have been done and you look at the way that networks really work across teachers and staff in schools, there are always power brokers that may not be the people that are the furthest up the food chain, but they are the people that hold the most influence with teaching staff. And that impact is really incredible. And so I think a lot about how what you just said about how it can take someone up to six years to finally feel secure and well networked and like you have people to lean on. That's pretty wild to think about when you are that would be wild if you were working in a job that was not stressful and it was not taxing and did not involve all the complexity socially that teaching does but in schools to not have to be an island is a surefire way to burn out faster absolutely yeah and there's there's work by travis bristol and matthew sherrill uh where they actually look at what they call um uh, they, in Travis Bristol's work, he looks at black minority teachers who are loners versus groupers. So mm-hmm. the loners are black teachers who work alone in their school. And, um, yeah, I think his, he does, his evidence suggests that, yeah, burnout rates are just like 
just kind of the difficulties faced in the day to day and the job are much higher for that for uh, black teachers who are isolated. Um, and this does relate to another organizational move that teacher or I saw principals making, which mm-hmm. is um, that contributed to this idea of isolation, which right. can be great, have powerful social effects um, on teachers daily work lives is how just basically the strategy principles used to place te- new teacher, either new teachers in their classrooms or even year by year, you know, reassigning teachers to different locations within the school. So in the white minority district, there was a combination of things kind of influencing the way the principal would do this. And when I interviewed them, one of them was a kind of a district mandate, so they had to follow it. This was a freshman academies model, which basically called for ninth grade teachers to be pulled out of their departments and put on a particular hallway or in a separate building. And then the second thing that influenced principal's placement was more of like an implicit sorting type thing where they're like, oh, so-and-so is a good disciplinarian. Mm-hmm. I need them in this high traffic area to kind of control the hallways. And a lot of times that maps on to, you know, the race of the teacher. Um, and so uh, the principals would make these placements using by those two, um, those two kind of factors. And what this resulted in in the white minority district was actually racially segregated clustering of teachers where a particular department would be split by race, such that, say, the math department, almost all the white teachers were on one hall. And then all the black teachers in the math department were in another hall. And this happened in both schools in multiple departments. Um, but that, you know, that, that if we're talking about in-group support from one's racial in-group, um, and there is some evidence to suggest that, you know, there's the social emotional support, the empathy, the understanding of shared experiences, being in the minority, those, those in-group ties can be really important in the workplace. Um, so there's not a loner situation in in the right. white minority district. You know, you're clustered around your in-group a, a lot of times. And it's even kind of sanctioned by the organizational moves the principal's making. Like, it's right. okay for you to hang out as a group. Like, in fact, you belong together as a group. And I'm, like, making this organizationally apparent. Like, the students would comment on it. Right. Like, this hallway is all the white teachers kind of thing. Versus in the black minority district, an organizational move – um, of how teachers were placed is that departments were actually kept together. But this actually led to the isolation of black teachers because they were usually hired on a token basis within each department. Right. So like one teacher uh, was like, oh, you know, she, she was an English teacher, a black English teacher. And she was like, oh, there's a new black science teacher who seems really nice. I really wanted to get to know her. Basically, though, I really only checked in with her at the end of the year to make sure things were going okay because she's way over there. Like, it takes right. a really long time to walk over there. Um, so, yeah, that's just – yeah, there's definitely research in education about the isolation factor. And so the the ideal – right, and so I think about this a lot through the lens of how can me, as a white male teacher, teaching – a population that like the school I teach at uh, is a 98% black student population. Okay. And so for me, my question always is, or at least I want it to be for any white person in that building, right. Is to never assume that I know anything about making sure that I can provide exactly what students need. If I did, if I did not come from that neighborhood, it would be different if I was teaching in Philadelphia, like I'm, I'm back home right now. And if I was 
in Philly and I was teaching five blocks from no matter you know the population of the student it wouldn't matter I was from there right yeah whereas for me as someone in a new city who is teaching in a neighborhood that I, I am not from and the color I, I'm not the same color of the entire student population for me it was very very important to make sure that I was talking and building connections with as diverse uh, a network of people in my building to make sure that I was leaving no stone left unturned to make sure that what I was doing was what was best for my kids. And so I think, and also just as an English teacher, I also think a lot about how if you're having, if you're splitting by department, right. And you have all the white English teachers on in one hallway and then all the black English teachers on another hallway, I have a feeling that if you go into those different clusters and you take a look at book lists, you take a look at all those different things that make an English class what it is, that there would be a profound difference and there would potentially be a greater benefit if those parties were unified and had been able to come together to work through a lot of the questions of curriculum and the question of, okay, so what did that project really activate with my students what do you think all of those all of those pieces are kind of what's flowing through my mind right now most definitely i should mention that um the the reason in my uh main research paper for my dissertation why i ended up focusing on in-group social ties uh and the social networks of teachers is because i found actual actually um what teachers got from their cross-race ties was fairly equitable across race, race groups. So I wanted to know like what, what was driving differences such that black teachers got less resources yes. of their in-group ties than did white teachers with their in-group ties. But right. to your point, um, one, actually in the kind of the conclusion of this paper, I do talk about, even though it's not the focus, I talk about the patterns of cross-race ties in the schools. Right. Um, and something unique that white minority teachers benefit from is exactly what you were mentioning. Um, the, if there are teachers from a racial background that uh, is similar to the majority of their students, they, I've, I observed a lot that the, that white teachers would consult those teachers for, you know, curriculum advice, um, classroom management advice. And that was a huge resource to them, even to the extent that, even what white minority teachers actually all in all, they, they got more resources from all of their colleagues and even white majority teachers who work in white majority um, faculty. But then the challenge is right. Again, as someone who is very privileged to be a white male in a space where, you know, there are just privileges that are attached to that, whether you like it or not. Right. So I think it is, it's certainly problematic that if, someone is hired as a black teacher in a school that is primarily made up of white teachers, that the likelihood that they receive benefits from being a part of that teaching cohort or that they receive fewer benefits, they are more prone to burnout, all of those things, you can see the trickle effect happening when it comes to thinking about what it would do for diversity to make sure that we have more black teachers, more black male teachers everywhere, not just in urban populations, but also just in all school districts everywhere, because there's a there are certain things that I know I I shouldn't 
touch as a teacher. I can't take it on because it's not it's not my place. There are things I can talk about and we can have those conversations, but there are certain things that I cannot message as effectively. And so it, it makes me think a lot about that that butterfly effect almost, right? Of number one, the hiring piece, but then also when you think about these are situations that teachers are walking into and there's always an optimism when you are a new teacher, you just so badly want to find some security socially. And we all want that, right? But especially in in a new school, you want to make sure that you have your footing. And so I can only imagine what it was like for you to, especially when you're getting a lot of the that ethnographic data, just to see the effects of these organizational, these structural moves on on people, you know, I, I it, it's a hard thing to to really think about the long term effects of. Like what comes to mind right away is I of the I had fourteen of my respondents were black minority teachers, and a lot of them had been in their school for seven to twelve years, so they had chosen to to stay and they were happy there. But it definitely. Um, you know, in in the way they would talk about their jobs, there were kind of some concessions they made. Um, mm. They liked working there because the physical facilities were beautiful, like looked like college campuses and more school resources. Um, they were overall happy with uh, like the way the schools were run, but then they did talk about you know my relationships here. They're not real friendships compared to the you know the majority black district or the other district I came from right. prior to this. You know. Um, and basically they came to the conclusion like that's fine with me. I, you know, I've decided that's fine. Um, even though it's like ongoing exclusion, basically yes. social exclusion. And then, uh, secondly, there was this piece and this kind of ties to one of the resources I talk about in the paper. I call it a political resource. And it goes back to what you were saying about people in the faculty who have influence and voice, yes. um, who can kind of like petition for other people's good if they want to, you know, kind of advocate and build that person up. Um, and so I think I found like black teachers had uh, less of this and the way it kind of manifested for them, even if they had these long careers within these schools is that they were hired to teach a higher level of an academic subject, but then they were actually placed in teaching the remedial or um, like a regular regular level versus an advanced level. Mm. And they were never, so even though they were promised a certain level of the position, that's not what they were placed in. And then they never actually, uh, no point in time came where they were kind of promoted or moved into what they were asking for. Um, And this, you know, this would go on for long periods of time. So um, that's another kind of concession that I, I don't know if they're consciously making it, but it's, you know, one point of dissatisfaction that they faced, you know, and they could readily make social comparison to teachers with less years of experience who were getting those benefits. So are there, were there any other organizational moves that ultimately had social impact or was it, were the two big ones, this idea of hiring and also teacher placement, both spatially and otherwise? Yes. So there was a third one. And I think this one actually might be linked to something you said earlier, but I think this, this one actually is what stood out to me the most. And Mm -hmm. like you mentioned, you were going to ask about one data point that kind of just drives home the the main message of my findings. Yes. So um, in one of the schools uh, in the black minority district, 
there was a teacher and I'll call her Miss Norton. She'd been there for about 10 years. She, um, told a story about how, so this, uh, I don't want to forget kind of the, now I remember how it links with what you were saying about, um, kind of the imperative of, of increasing diversity in schools, hiring more black teachers. Yes. But this story I think shines light on like, well, we actually need to pay really close attention to the organizational practices principals are using because just bringing in more black teachers on its own won't be, is not going to facilitate better outcomes for yes. teachers. Um, so Miss Norton tells a story where, you know, repeatedly when she goes to faculty meetings, if she sits with, um, more than one other black teacher, an administrator will come up to her and ask her to spread out. Mm. Um, you know, and she kind of tells me like her internal thought process. She doesn't say it back to the principal, but you know, why do I have to move? The majority doesn't have to move. And, and, um, you know, they, the principal thinks this is a problem. And I asked her, well, why do, why do they think it's a problem? And she said, I think in reality, um, like we're considered a, like a, a threat. We're going to have an uprising that we're talking in ways that threaten would threaten the school or something, uh, right. you know, petition for things that we want. Um, and so they just want to kind of avoid that and yeah. make teachers spread out. Um, so um, the point there is that, so I call this organizational practice informal policing. Mm. Um, so this is like not actually a rule in, you know, school procedures that teachers of like race can't sit together. That's not actually a rule, but it's being enforced. Right. So right. this is an institutional norm. Um, it's like pretty overtly discriminatory um, being applied to one group and not another. Um, and then conversely, it, like there's actually like the mere opposite that happens in the white minority district where there actually is a rule um, not against like race sorting, but just about hanging out in groups of teachers at certain points of the day. Um, so in one of the, actually in both of the white minority schools during lunch, the teachers needed to go to lunch with their classes and sit with their class. Hmm. But regularly, like kind of what one white teacher called like a club of white teachers, it was for a group of four white teachers, they would all pull up their chairs at one table and sit together. So they're actually breaking an actual rule and yeah. no or ever asked them to spread out, you know, and also white teachers would sit together at the faculty meetings. No one, no administrator asked them to spread out. Um, so at the end of the day, like, the, like this kind of informal practice or rather organizational practice sends the message to black teachers. Like it's not okay for you to work in groups, um, which has a huge, like if we, if you, like social networks 101, like you will accomplish a lot more like advocating for your group and getting resources for the whole group than going about it individually um, and getting resources for yourself for everything. Right. That That is pretty, it's pretty wild in that when you think about, I mean, when I think about a lot of things that are, that are going on today, politically that are going around everywhere. Right. I think that what is sometimes scarier are not the official policies that are are written and that are law or that are ordinances by that a district hands down but the informal the things that you feel are happening but if you don't pay too much attention to it you might not realize it those are really the scary things and so yeah. you know, for for a lot of teachers you you are you go through the day and you're you're just making making sure that, that you're doing best by your kids and you get home and you sit down and you're not able to necessarily go back through all of the social dynamics at play. Oh, yeah. It's yeah. really hard. And so 
it's it's great that you were able to really put a finger to this idea of yeah the way that teachers are and i love the term I, i do think that it is informal policing in a lot of ways the fact that that is happening and these are not the only schools where that those types of informal practices are happening it is something to consider and so i'm really really glad that you brought that up yeah. So let's let's move into the the question that I'll get you out on. And okay. I I'm interested, you know, after spending your time in these schools, if you could provide some roadmap to administrators in schools to make sure that they are leveraging their diversity as much as possible and that they are being mindful and aware of the organizational decisions that they are having, that they're making, and the impact that those decisions are having, what would you say to administrators of schools to make sure that they are doing those things? There is research and education that, you know, does shine a light on and cares a lot about what the principal's doing and how that impacts school level, um, like student achievement, performance on school accountability stuff. But most of this research, so some of it, one is by uh, economist Nicholas Bloom. He looks at different dimensions of management quality, including things like operations, um, some people management. There's a few other um, dimensions, but none of them address uh, the manager, you know, principal, the principal's role as a manager of adult workers, you know, manager of employees socially. Um, And I so I think like in thinking about making a roadmap that could be used immediately useful to principals. For thinking about leveraging diversity, um, and I would add just becoming more conscious of discriminatory practices that yeah. are sometimes just are automatic in the way that the institutional culture is already um, it, when the school was handed to them, or you know just simply the way society um, has I don't know our kind of our shallow understanding of what diversity is and what it's for and who it's for. Um, some of those things are kind of handed to the principal, like it's beyond like. The principal is already functioning under, you know, within and in, under institutional racism. And so it's like bound to trickle into his or her own practices without kind of real vigilant, um, you know, like even like keeping tab, like tabs on his or her own choices in these three areas. Like, right. how am I seeing teachers? Am I using the same, you know? Uh, coming up with a procedure that they will follow for every single uh, when they choose where they're going to place each person, um, you know, or making sure that like there's some shifts in positioning of teachers over the years, so they're not always in the same clusters or cliques. Um, so in terms of the hiring organizational practice, kind of a roadmap for principals in terms of diversity. So either all groups of teachers need to be kind of allowed that incumbent referral uh, aspect. But really research suggests if you want to improve equity uh, among employees in an organization, you should, managers should just reduce their use of these incumbent referrals because it will create inequality from the very beginning for those who have it, that advantage. So one way or the other, either uh, use referrals across the board or be conscientious to, you know, reduce referrals, which I know in education, like that might be kind of hard because a lot of teachers move around schools because they have connections to other teachers in those schools. Um, and principals, you know, need to fill those vacancies. Um, 
So that's one thought. Another is to avoid hiring teachers as demographic tokens in their department. And I think that's especially important for race, but there were, there was some feedback, like interview responses I got where for gender minorities and departments that also affected them. So say like a, the lone male um, science teacher in a science department of all female teachers often felt excluded. So avoiding the situation of like just having one demographic token for that department would be another thing that principals could be conscious of. Right. Because that, that leads to isolation and exclusion a lot of times socially. Right. So I think we've discussed like maybe setting up a procedure for themselves where they avoid this implicit sorting of like, oh, I think this teacher is good for this part of the school because, you know, they have these kind of stereotypes of what which teacher fits where uh, right. and what's good at. Um, along those same lines, for like this is not necessarily spatial assignment of teachers, but assigning them to different levels of, you know, yeah. with their department of um, the level of students they teach, or the, even class size, just being conscious of rotating who teaches, say, like, um, the repeaters who are taking the test for the second time, not always assigning it to the same teacher for five years in a row. Mm-hmm. Um, so kind of distributing it, you know, across different faculty um, in in some kind of just set pattern. Um Right. Uh, and then thirdly, for the informal policing, what kind of roadmap would I suggest to principals? Mm-hmm. As you said, like this is in some ways the scariest part of organizational life, the stuff that's not written down, right. that's not really monitored by anybody. And I, there has to be some kind of accountability structure for the principal where that kind of action is, I don't know if punished is the right word, but it like, you know, detracts from their evaluation. Um, right. If they're evaluated on something like this and they may care more about it and pay much more attention to it of course there's the problem of like who's going to observe this who's going to report it um right who watches the watchman that that whole idea right it 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 is it's really tricky and i i've i've thought a lot about what just bias bias generally right and how it comes into play for teachers right and and so i i talked to calvin Lai, who is at washington university of st louis and he's done a lot of studies on implicit bias generally and that conversation was really interesting because what he called for is it's not it's not about these implicit bias trainings necessarily you can't just spend three hours talking about your biases and assume that that's going to solve the problem. And so what he prescribed for the teacher level is just making sure that you are tracking your actions as much as humanly possible and, and and being a, a real data analyst when it comes to that. Right. But you're right that it is, it is harder when it comes to the principle. It's just more difficult to be in that role and, you know, a teacher has, you know, who do you call on for certain questions? Who is the person that you always ask to do X chore, whereas, you know, X, Y, and Z, whereas with the principal, it's not quite as clear. So I I do think that that's the scariest one. And it's also the one that is the most difficult to really think about, okay, what are the steps that we can take? Yeah, absolutely. I do think, I think, um, Calvin Lott, I think that his point about, yeah, keeping keeping tabs on oneself or like having some reporting mechanism is really powerful um, and can lead to behavioral changes within the organization. So, right. yeah, something along those lines, I think, could have some purchase on these informal policing type um, things. I don't know. I 
I don't know if like a, a 360 evaluation model for principals could help, you know, whereby their employees are yes. part of how they're evaluated. I mean, I know still it's going to be really hard for um, teachers who are in the demographic minority and don't feel very welcomed in the organization in the first place to honestly report these things, you know, and, and trust right. that they'll be held anonymous because there's very few. And so yes. they can pinpoint who said that. Um, I don't know, but that would be, there's a lot of evidence in organizations, um, just on studying diversity, um, that the real, like having things like diversity trainings or even like the bias trainings, like those things in isolation aren't going to lead to behavioral changes for employees in the organization or managers in the organization. It's when, it's when you first establish an accountability mechanism where when you don't act in ways that um, value, like really value diverse members of the organization that you actually have a repercussion. Like that is what will change people's behavior. Um, And then after that, then there's, you know, I think it's Alexandra Kalev has a 2006 article and colleagues where she talks about once that accountability mechanism is in place, then you can talk about, you know, the potential usefulness of a diversity training. Right. Awesome. So that's at least a, a bright, a small bright note to end on in an otherwise challenging, challenging problem. But yeah. Dr. Nelson, I really appreciate you taking the time out. I think that this is going to be a great listen for a lot of people when they're thinking through just things that are happening in their schools at their teacher level, but also the administrators who will listen to this and really take a look at their own practices. So thank you so much for coming on. This has been uh, a privilege and a pleasure. So thank you. Thank you so much to Jennifer for joining me on the podcast today. I'm so grateful to her for coming on and to you for listening. We'll be back with episodes every Wednesday for the foreseeable future. So please make sure you have subscribed on whatever podcast app you use. I'm really excited about what we have planned for the next year. So until next time, class dismissed.